Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. I'm Charles Hayne. We are here on November 30th, 2017. And on this week's show, the indie films that are changing the face of award season, award categories in question and why that matters to filmmakers, and an Ask No Film School, how to shoot anamorphic on a still camera. And as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, and indie film releases. Welcome to this week's show. We're coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School, and we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on films. How was everybody's Thanksgiving? Good. I deep fried a turkey and beef tallow. Wow, that is so meaty. It was amazing. I highly recommend it. We had a peanut allergy there, which is why we didn't do peanut oil. And uh, the beef tallow got hard enough, we had to dump it out of the bucket and break it up with a pickaxe to oh get it in God. the thing. Oh, it wasn't a pickaxe, it was a hatchet. But and you didn't set anyone on fire? No one got set on fire. I had to clean the pickaxe because it got covered in tallow. That was like the biggest drama of the... Yeah. I highly recommend deep frying a turkey in tallow. Oh, my God. Intense. I have to say, I had a special turkey this year, too. My guy's brother's girlfriend is Peruvian, and she made this incredible chipotle rub for the turkey. She makes all these, like, pepper sauces. And so she, like, rubbed the turkey down with chipotle, brined it for three days, and then they cooked it in a smoker. It was so freaking delicious holy cow they cooked it in a smoker yeah it was oh like God. smoked pepper turkey holy crap it was I outrageous heard of that that's yeah, amazing it was john turkey, turkey i went stories. to veselka for the second thanksgiving in a row and uh honestly couldn't have it any other way wow. do, do, you, do you want to share with the rest of the non-new york audience what Veselka oh yeah is? sure veselka is my favorite restaurant in new york city it has been for quite some time it's Aww. a ukrainian diner in the east village that serves food 24 hours you can get the best pierogies the best stroganoff the best deluxe meat plate in the city maybe even in the probably in the united states um and every thanksgiving they do sort of a prefix for 30 bucks you can get everything that you'd normally get at a thanksgiving meal uh incredibly well cooked uh none of the hassle (laughs) That's so awesome. Do they make turkey pierogi? No, they actually make a special sweet potato pierogi and a marshmallow pierogi (gasps) that they include in the dinner. That sounds so good. Is it like you and a bunch of old dudes? No, it's actually surprisingly busy. And I think it's a lot of college kids who, you know, I haven't gone home for Thanksgiving in nine years because Mm. it doesn't make sense to fly back six hours to San Francisco for two days. It just fucks with your rhythm in terms of like sleeping and whatever so i think a lot of college kids also do that so there's a lot of transplants that go in uh and eat there also Veselka's kind of hip right there's like a little bit of a hip thing is very hip i mean it's it's both not i mean it's it's for everyone it's just i mean it's a cheap all-night diner like yes yeah and amazing food so oh that's like there's something very sweet and new yorky about that tradition i love it yeah it's a good one so, speaking of annual traditions, we are plunging headfirst into award season. And when I was preparing the story, I first thought to myself, like, man, we are going to be talking about awards a lot over the next couple months. But then I thought about how great that is. After all, we've covered so much kind of tough industry news this year. And so why not spend some airtime on events that celebrate great films and filmmakers? So with that, I enthusiastically bring you news of the 27th Gotham Independent Film Awards, 
which were hosted by New York's Independent Filmmaker Project, or as we all know and love it, the IFP, on Monday night. These awards have become the real kickoff to the season, and this year they were an indicator of what we talked about last week regarding how Oscars might be different this year in the wake of all the sexual assault allegations flying around the industry. The New York Times described this year's Gotham's as, quote, muted, and attendee Reese Witherspoon called it, quote, sedate, when we had some girl talk, you know, after the event. So that being said, there were obviously plenty of reasons to celebrate this extraordinary year in independent film, and the big winners of the evening certainly must have been feeling good. Jordan Peele's Get Out went into the ceremony as the leader with four nominations, three of which it won for Breakthrough Director, Best Screenplay, and Audience Award. And Get Out was followed closely by Greta Gerwig's acclaimed directorial debut, Lady Bird, and Koganada's Columbus, which had three nominations each. Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name took home the prize for Best Feature, and Yance Ford's Strong Island won for Best Documentary. Can I just interject here and say, like, I guess it's it's weird to me that it, this whole thing is being described as sedate. I, I don't really know what <laughs> that means, but, you know, in terms of the films that are actually being nominated and winning these things, maybe that's just a symptom of, you know, the state of the industry and how like it's actually changing like look at these look at these films that are coming out you have get out which is like one of the most politically subversive movies of the past five ten years you have call me by your name which is a gay romance you have ladybird which is a female directed film i mean what what is there really to talk about in that sense like it's you mean where's the con- there's where's no controversy? The, there's no controversy in terms of the actual films that are being nominated. Oh yeah, for these it's it's two separate issues, and I totally I have making the same point later. Like the face of these awards is changing, which is awesome, but it's more like the whole mood around it is less celebratory than in past years because people are just like feeling the weight of all this turmoil in Hollywood. So, so okay, so when, when you they say-, say sedate, it doesn't mean that the awards are sedate themselves or that like the recipients are sedate. They mean like the whole mood of the thing, like the awards ceremony itself was just like quiet, understated, oh. didn't feel like a big old party. Okay, because when I hear sedate, I think about like how awards shows generally have this tendency to like be platforms for filmmakers to make political statements or ah. that sort of thing. So that's that's where Oh I'm yeah, it's more like that. the the whole mood, the mood of the thing, the tone of the evening is just sedate. It did not feel like a big crazy party cuz Hollywood does not feel like partying right now cuz Hollywood feels kind of gross about itself. Exactly. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. But the movies that were actually awarded were making statements. Yeah. They were not sedate. It was not like a napping yes. movie that was like a cat nap. Yeah, this is a, what I'm talking about is a statement on the state of the industry, not yeah. on the films that are winning, which like we all have praised also many times uh, over this past year. So speaking of our take, we've got interviews and coverage of the majority of winners and nominees. So uh, we'll link to John's post about the Gothams in this week's podcast post, where you can see links to all of those posts. So Get Out and Lady Bird were also recognized this week as two of the year's best films by the National Board of Review, a 108-year-old organization made up of film enthusiasts, filmmakers, professionals, and academics. The board named Steven Spielberg's The Post as the year's best film. To be honest, I haven't heard too much about The Post, but as Matt Nagila of Next Best Picture pointed out, when Meryl Streep and her film are both nominated in the same year, that film wins Best Picture. He cited The Deer Hunter, Kramer vs. Kramer, and Out of Africa as examples. 
The National Board's list of top films also included several of our favorites from the past year, including Baby Driver, Call Me By Your Name, and The Florida Project. This is probably also a good time to mention that Gotham and National Board winner Lady Bird reached what's perhaps an even more significant goal in our modern movie-going era. On Monday, Lady Bird became the best-reviewed movie of all time on Rotten Tomatoes. The film has 164 reviews, and all of them are fresh, giving it an extremely rare 100% fresh rating. The previous record holder was Toy Story 2, which had 163 reviews and 100% fresh rating. Not gonna lie, as John mentioned earlier, I'm personally pretty stoked that movies made by a lady, a black guy, and a gay man are leading the pack right now. In my view, it bodes really well for the future of independent film. It's interesting that, I don't know, this is what I was thinking of as you were talking about, uh, well, since I wrote that article about Gotham, like one of my introductory paragraph was like, it's a pretty good indicator of how the Academy Awards would play out in terms of like, Moonlight won Best Picture there last year, Casey Affleck won Best Actor, Moonlight won Best Screenplay. Um, And so like this year, I was feeling that it's also a pretty good indicator of what could win Best Feature and like how indies are basically winning Best Feature, quote unquote indies are basically winning Best Feature at the Oscars every year. And then that made me think about the statement that Steven Spielberg and Lucas made, George Lucas made like, I don't know, a decade ago about how like the motion picture industry is dying as they know it, like the blockbuster scene is dying. And it's I was trying to think of like the last real blockbuster movie that won Best Feature. I can't really remember what it was. But then you said this thing about like how I guess NBR said that The Post is the best movie of the year and it's made by Spielberg. So like he's the one who's still able to make like blockbusters that are affecting i don't know it's interesting but is the post even a blockbuster like it's it doesn't necessarily have like the blockbuster qualities so maybe i mean it has a blockbuster director it has meryl streep it has you know tom hanks it has pretty much the qualities of a blockbuster steven spielberg movie well it's like serious drama it's not like a blockbuster and what we'd think of as like a summer blockbuster kind of like. No, right. But it's the kind of blockbuster that would act as fodder for the best feature. Like a big box office draw. Yeah. But it's also like, I think it's a, a hope that that can still be a blockbuster. Like I saw someone in Facebook talking about Tracy Letts talking about uh, Last Picture Show, which in 1971 or 72 when it came out was like a huge hit and like everyone in America saw it and that was a blockbuster, which like it's impossible to imagine a movie like that being a blockbuster today. But the hope is that someone like Spielberg is still able to make the post into a blockbuster. Like there are, I can't remember the last time like a blockbuster of that kind of movie happened and it could have been 10 years. Yeah, I mean, I would say that like, probably the like war movies like again looking back at Spielberg and Saving Private Ryan that would be my <laughs> closest comparison I guess so I would think like oh maybe like Dunkirk I mean right Dunkirk came out this last year with a but, big director big budget big box office like it's also a national board of reviews top li- list of yeah. top films but I don't think Dunkirk should win best picture I don't know that's just me I really liked it. Uh, I, but I was bored of shit. Okay. Really? Yes. I have one question, though. Why do we think Three Billboards isn't in all this mix? Like, obviously, Lady Bird's amazing. Get Out's amazing. They're both great films. I totally uh, understand why Lady Bird has 100%. Like, it's magic. I'll probably see it a second time in the theater. But it seems like Three Billboards, or at least like Francis McDormand's performance in Three Billboards, is sort of missing in this mix. 
I'm not sure how independent it's considered. Maybe that's part uh, of it. Um, I, th- I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen it yet, but like Mar- Martin McDonough is, it also plays into what we're going to talk about next, which is like, what genre is Three Billboards? You know, mm. like what, where does it fall in this like sort of award season categories? Uh, is it a comedy? Is it an action movie? Is it a drama? Is really just probably all three of those things just going off what I know of Martin McDonough. So those movies tend to typically not do well during award season, um, which I can now use as a, a, a transitioning point into Get Out and the sort of controversy that's surrounded it as the Golden Globes classified it as a comedy. So while we're on this subject, we might as well mention what happened. As I said, the Golden Globes announced earlier this month that they'd be considering Get Out in the Best Musical or Comedy category and not for Best Drama. The announcement provoked a lot of online backlash, including a brilliant piece of tweeting from Jordan Peele in which he insisted, Get Out is a documentary. Now, in my opinion, Get Out had some hilarious moments in it, and I think that most people out there would agree that aspects of the film fall into the comedy genre. The problem here is the themes of the movie itself are deeply real and not funny. And for those that haven't seen it, can you just give the little synopsis? Yeah, I'll say watch it on HBO Go, first of all, Mm. you idiots. And (laughs) secondly, it's about a uh, black man who falls into a relationship with a white woman, goes to meet her family for the first time and some uh i don't want to like spoil the movie for you but it's basically like a horror uh in the sense that i mean that that's the genre i would categorize it in but like her family uh is we'll say less than kind to the african-american race yeah that's fair. That's I would fair. also add to that maybe hijinks ensue yeah sure that's definitely some hijinks So as my old boss Eric Cohn from IndieWire stated, no matter the absurd premise, Get Out explores the paranoia and victimization of the African-American experience with palpable suspense and ideas that go well beyond the realm of punchlines. Peel himself elaborated on his feelings on the matter, explaining, quote, The problem is, it's not a movie that can really be put into a genre box. Originally, I set out to make a horror movie. I ended up showing it to people and hearing, you know, it doesn't even feel like horror. It's in this thriller world, so it was a social thriller. What the movie is about is not funny, he continued. I've had many black people come up to me and say, man, this is the movie we've been talking about for a while, and you did it. That's a very powerful thing. For that to be put in a smaller box than it deserves is where the controversy comes from. So, I mean, ultimately, I'd say that this movie is a satire, and I'm not sure where I, where that falls in line in terms of these award distinctions. I don't know. It's also ridiculous that their category remains musicals. And yeah. That's what oh I was my gosh. Say. Yeah. Although Get Out the Musical might be a future thing. You never know. I would totally see that on Broadway. In a related story, Errol Morris is facing a similar situation with his latest film, Wormwood. Everyone knows that Morris is a documentarian who's even won a past Oscar for his film, The Fog of War, in 2003. And everyone knows that he helped pioneer documentary tactics that seemed unconventional at the time, but thereafter became documentary convention, like reenacted scenes and Philip Glass scores. Well, Wormwood is true to form, but in this case, his reenactments go a step further. The movie's a true crime thriller about how a CIA operative who was experimenting with LSD ended up falling out, maybe, of a 13th-story window of a New York hotel in 1953. 
the reenactments in this film are actually not fact-based. They're entirely scripted imaginings of what happened, starring Peter Sarsgaard as the FBI agent Frank Olson. Interestingly, though, it's not the doc-fiction hybrid that's giving Morris problems with the Oscars this year. It's the project's length and platform. You see, the film is four and a half hours long, and it will premiere on Netflix on December 15th. You might remember that after the miniseries O.J. Made in America won the Oscar for Best Doc last year, the committee changed the rules so that episodic documentary series would no longer be eligible for the award. So, it's simple, right? Wormwood is an episodic documentary, and therefore it doesn't qualify. Well, no. Because another four-hour documentary, made for Amazon, is up for the award this year. Amir Barlev's Grateful Dead opus, Long Strange Trip, apparently qualifies because it screened all four hours in one sitting at Sundance and opened theatrically as a movie before it began streaming on Amazon Prime in six parts. As an aside, Long Strange Trip also received a Grammy nomination earlier this week for Best Music Film. Can I just say that that makes sense to me, that Long Strange Trip would be nominated and this thing wouldn't? Because I don't think Long Strange Trip was produced by Amazon to be a miniseries. And I think that Wormwood was produced by Netflix. The thing is, the reason why it's kind of controversial and why why it doesn't really make sense to me is that Netflix is also giving Wormwood a rare day-and-date theatrical release. But according to an article from Ann Thompson and IndieWire, the film's ineligible because when Morris first played it at Telluride, it screened as the six Netflix episodes with just like with episodic interstitials removed. So like even though both films played at major festivals and even though both films will screen theatrically, they're not both qualified for the award. So in my opinion, these minute distinctions are just getting ridiculous. And Morris is understandably pissed. As he said in that same IndieWire article at the beginning of his career, quote, the whole idea that you would put documentaries in theaters was considered to be ridiculous. And he added that, quote, it's still true that the whole idea of documentaries being put in theaters is almost an afterthought. Therefore, theatrical release as a precursor to Oscar qualification should be called into question. So the question remains as to whether Wormwood will make the list in other categories for which it might qualify, like Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Director... But still, like, the documentary category has got to figure itself out. So why does any of this matter to filmmakers? Well, for one, as much as some of us would prefer not to admit it, these awards can really matter to amplifying a career. But if we can't even qualify because the entities that fund our work happen to be streaming platforms or our stories need to be told at non-traditional lengths, it can feel like a Sophie's choice. Do we sacrifice some of our artistic vision for potential long-term gain? These conversations are sure to continue within and outside the Academy, so we'll keep you posted. And now, moving on to gear news. What you got for us, Charles? Hello. So, top of the gear news this week is a thorough rundown of the new Zenmuse X7 camera and lens system from filmmaker Randall Asulto that we ran last week. So, traditionally, with a drone, you either went like for an integrated camera drone system, which was great because it'd be lighter and easier to stabilize, but you would always have some sort of hit in image quality. Or you could go for one of like the big drones like the DJI Matrix where you can fly like a full-size Red Epic or Alexa Mini and you get your full cinematic imagery, but it's a huge bump in price, a huge bump in complication. With the X7, DJI is introducing a camera lens platform that's 
I think they're really hoping is going to intercut seamlessly with your A-camera cinematic footage, and you're not even going to notice any bump down in quality with the drone. It's beyond just an integrated camera. They've introduced their own lens mount, the DL mount, and a Super 35 millimeter sensor size that all works together to create some really stunning imagery. Randall did a really great hands-on investigation of the platform, going into detail on bokeh and aberration and all sorts of qualities that matter a lot to filmmakers. So I would give that a look if you're considering uh, trying to get your hands on some cinematic quality drone footage. I think the reason why this really stands out is not just because of like it was designed to do what it does instead of having to hobble things together, but like the cost, while still high, is so much less high than anything near it. Like you get the drone, the camera, and a four lens set for under ten thousand dollars, whereas you can't even get a Red or Alexa body for that much. Yeah, and yeah, and I mean the image quality is like I haven't tested it directly against the C two hundred or the EV one, but it's 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 aiming at the Alexa and the Red. It's almost definitely going to match what you can get out of the EVA one and the C two hundred within within reasonable parameters for a similar price point, and it also flies. Uh, there's also been some people who've been doing some stuff with DJI Inspires where they're just holding the Inspire and using it as a gimbal. Mm-hmm. Um, I there's been no indication of this from DJI, but I imagine there will be some way to hook up the X seven to a handheld unit or a car unit at some point in the future. And uh, I actually got to play with the lenses, and the lenses weigh nothing. Like, you're holding the lens in your hand, and because of the carbon fiber construction and new optical design, you literally are like, I can't believe a lens weighs this little. And as you can see in the review, uh, the results were very impressive. Uh, Next up, on the smaller end of the scale, uh, Moment has come out with a series of counterweights for the Osmo series of gimbal, which are also from DJI. The Osmo was the first of the super handheld gimbals to really take off, but it never really handled well if you wanted to attach an external lens to your smartphone since it throws off the weight balance. Now, adding a counterweight to the system makes the whole biscuit heavier, but it lets you balance the camera platform better, making less work for the motors and a longer runtime on the same set of batteries. If you're really into, like, the iPro lens attachments for your iPhone or something, and you want to be able to fly that on a stabilizer, the moment counterweights are something to look for. Last up, Sony has dived into the world of CFast cards. For a long time, Sony's pushed their own card formats pretty hard. They were going for XQD versus CFast. But in the last few years, they've gotten more flexible and put more support behind open formats. CFast still remains surprisingly and annoyingly pricey. And... Even though Sony's pricing isn't super cheap yet, it's right around industry standard, a little lower. More competition, more volume, and more factories churning out these cards will eventually pay off with them being less painful on the wallet sometime soon. So now moving on to Ask No Film School. This week's question comes from Jonathan Danforth, who asked if either us or Leica had any ideas on fitting an anamorphic lens on his M246 rangefinder. He wants it for stills, mostly, but he's clueless and lost. Those are his words, not mine. Why, yes, Mr. Danforth, you can indeed mount an anamorphic lens to an M246 rangefinder, but man, is it going to cost you. And then first, for those of you who don't know what camera he's talking about, like John, who just asked. I'm even more clueless than this other John. Um, what is an M264 rangefinder? It's a still camera from Leica with a monochrome sensor similar to the popular red monochrome line of camera bodies. It's a rangefinder camera, meaning there's no mirror in it, so you don't frame through the lens. 
you frame through a parallax viewer that's mounted above the camera. And it uses the Leica M mount. Why are we answering a still photo question on National Film School? First off, he asked us. And, you know, we always like to be asked. Secondly, almost every still camera now has some video application. Uh, I do most of my videos with a still camera. I think most people who probably listen to this do most of their videos with still cameras. So we thought it was an interesting question to dig into. So here's why it's going to be so expensive. Most anamorphic lenses are either in PL, positive lock, or PV, Panavision, mount. There's some aftermarket anamorphic adapters out there from companies like SLR Magic that you might be able to, like, front mount onto your current lens. Like, they'll screw on and make your current still lens anamorphic. But if you want top-of-line cinema-style anamorphics, you're likely going to have to rent PL mount glass. You could consider buying them, but, like, the cheapest anamorphic lens tends to start around $5,000 a lens. So mostly we rent. Um... So, now you've rented that PL mount anamorphic, and you want to mount it to your M-mount Leica camera. So, CW Sonderopic and Duclos lenses both have PL to M-mount adapters, and Duclos has theirs at $2,200. Hopefully, someone out there has bought one and is renting it out, because, man, $2,200 is a lot to pay for a lens adapter. Damn, yeah. Part of the reason for all this is scarcity. Like, for instance, I have an X-T2 from Fuji, and adapters are, like, way cheaper because there's many more of those cameras out there in volume. The X to PL mount adapter I got, which lets me mount PL mount lenses on my Fuji, was, like, 80 bucks. The most I've ever paid for a lens adapter is, like, 200 bucks, and that had, like, an aperture built into it because of volume. The Leica M is just not that common, so there's not going to be a lot of volume to bring the price down, hence $2,200. Also, most cinema-style anamorphic lenses are only designed to cover the smaller super 35mm image sensor, not the bigger full-frame area of your Leica. So you'll either have a lot of vignetting in your image that you'll have to crop out, or you've got to pay big money to rent like VistaVision anamorphics, which, whoa, are going to set you back. Uh, Photodiox has a Leica M to EF mount adapter that's only 30 bucks. Because, like, Photodiox has every adapter. If there's an adapter they can make, Photodiox has made it. And it looks like SLR Magic also has some anamorphic lenses in EF mount. But currently they are $19,300 at B&H. And I doubt that they're going to go on sale anytime soon. So Holy getting Lord. anamorphic on your Leica is not going to be the cheapest proposition in the world. Uh, good luck. Let us know how it goes. Post some of your photos to uh, Twitter. Thanks for the question, Other John, and thanks for the answer, Charles Hain. And now for some fantastic indie movies you can catch this week. Coming to Amazon Prime Instant on December 1st, you can see Silence. Martin Scorsese's latest film didn't do as well as many expected last year, but nevertheless, it's Scorsese, so you gotta see it, right? I'm gonna do it. The film takes place in the 17th century as two Portuguese Jesuit priests travel to Japan in an attempt to locate their mentor, who is rumored to have committed apostasy and to propagate Catholicism. Scorsese has long had a knack for movies centered around religion, and Silence was a film that took 25 years for him to finally make. The pre-production phase of the filmmaking for Silence went through a cycle of over two decades of setbacks and reassessments. After filming for The Wolf of Wall Street concluded in January 2013, Scorsese refused to follow it up with any film other than Silence. It boasts a talented cast in Andrew Garfield, Adam Driver, and Liam Neeson, and the American Film Institute selected Silence as one of its 10 best movies of the year. 
The film also received an Academy Award nomination for Best Cinematography at the 89th Academy Awards, which was last year. Darren James sat down with legendary cinematographer Rodrigo Pietro to discuss the making of this epic, and you can read that interview on the site. Now available on Netflix is a pretty interesting experiment. 30 years after the release of Spike Lee's low-budget black-and-white indie hit She's Gotta Have It, the director is back with an adaptation of the same name in the form of a TV series for Netflix. The first season is five hours long, and each episode was directed by Lee himself. Now, the original film was shot for 175000 bucks, and it ultimately grossed over $7 million in the U.S., launching Lee's career. I'm curious as to whether the series based on the same premise of a woman who's juggling relationships with three very different men, will hold up 30 years later, but it does sort of feel as relevant as ever in the age of Tinder, and so far the reviews are pretty good. And coming to theaters on December 1st is Wonder Wheel. Woody Allen's newest movie had a big presence at the New York Film Festival back in October, serving as the closing night film. It takes place on Coney Island in the 1950s, where a lifeguard tells the story of a middle-aged carousel operator and his beleaguered wife. It stars Kate Winslet, Justin Timberlake, and Juno Temple. Winslet's performance is being praised, but not much else about the film is. It also comes out in a tricky window for Woody, who's had his fair share of trouble as a womanizer in the past. But we'll see how it's received. And also coming to theaters on Friday is The Disaster Artist. This one has been on my most anticipated list for quite some time. It first premiered to great acclaim at South by Southwest in the spring, and since then it's been on a torrid path towards award season which many probably wouldn't have expected when first hearing about the film. James Franco just won Best Actor for his performance as Tommy Wiseau at the Gotham Awards earlier this week, and he also directed the film, which is a retelling of the infamous production of the cult classic The Room. If you're not familiar with The Room, just go ahead and type the worst movie ever made into Google. This movie, however, is the perfect example of the adage, it's so bad, it's good. The film, which first came out back in 2003, has a cult following so large that its creator, the aforementioned Tommy Wiseau, still tours theaters around the world with it today. Franco's film is based on a book written by Greg Sestero, an aspiring filmmaker who met Wiseau and made the room with him from the very beginning. There's a documentary worth mentioning called Brimstone and Glory that hit theaters last week. It's a documentary directed by Victor Jakovleski about fireworks. It's filmed entirely on location in the Mexican fireworks capital, Tudlepec, and it tells the story of the town that's said to produce 80% of the fireworks for the entire country. Every year, 100,000 people descend upon the town to celebrate San Juan de Dios, patron saint of firework makers. Is that a thing? Wow. It's a nine-day festival. It's a raucous homage to the ephemeral beauty of fireworks and the many dangers associated with the craft. You might remember in 2016, 32 people died in a fireworks market explosion in that town. You can read our dearly departed and re-risen Emily Booter's interview with the DP who shot the film largely in slow motion with Blackmagic pocket cam- cinema cameras and GoPros. By the way, this film was also named as one of the top documentaries of the year on the National Board of Review list that we mentioned earlier. Oren Jacoby's Shadow Man is another documentary coming to theaters on Friday. This film revels in the mystique of the gritty downtown early 80s art scene, birthplace of now legendary names like Basquiat and Herring, and also of their contemporary Richard Hamilton, the shadow man to whom the film's title refers. Hamilton was an underground art star at the time, but his life went a very different direction than his contemporaries, which the movie explores, covering many years of struggles, illness, bad decisions, personal demons, and very greedy people posing as patrons. All the while, Hamilton was creating incredible art. 
I think any filmmaker who considers themselves an artist will find something to relate to in this dark film. And when I interviewed Jacoby back at the film's Tribeca premiere, he was very candid about how difficult it could be to create a film about such a complicated person. So we will link to all the articles uh, from the films that we mentioned in this week's podcast post. And speaking of artists, we can move on to our upcoming grant deadlines. The Robert Rauschenberg Foundation Archives Research Travel Fund has a deadline on December 14th. If you're a documentarian who could benefit from using the archival materials housed on site at the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation Archives in New York City, then you could receive $500 to $2,500 to fly out per trip for research thanks to this travel fund. These archives consist of records from the artists' Florida and New York studios. This is an incredibly specific grant, yes, but if you're making an art doc of any kind, it could be of benefit. Screen Australia's feature film production program has a deadline on December 11th. If you're an Australian-based filmmaker, you have got to get in touch with Screen Australia. The government film agency throws down major funds for low-budget features, documentaries, and large-format programs, including up to 65% of your feature film budget if it meets the criteria. Screen Australia's feature film production program aims to support a diverse slate of Australian films for theatrical release that entertain and enlighten domestic and international audiences while reflecting the unique characteristics of Australian identity. So if you have that identity, do it. And heads up to short filmmakers, the final, final deadline for next year's Tribeca Film Festival is tomorrow, December 1st. We talk a lot about the festival on this show. This year it'll take place from April 18th to the 29th, 20. 18. For their shorts, you need to be under 40 minutes, can be narrative, documentary, animated, experimental films that have not screened publicly in New York or been broadcast or distributed in any way before January 1st, 2017. They're really strict about having other people seen your work before, which is a trend that actually seems to be diminishing. So, you know, we hope that they'll stay with the trend because a lot of times we like to get our shorts up online and it doesn't mean that that would conflict with the festival audience. Also with the deadline tomorrow is the Nashville Film Festival, which will take place May 10th to the 19th next year in Nashville, Tennessee. This is also the late deadline. This festival offers a whopping $65,000 in cash and in-kind sponsor prizes to filmmakers, with winners selected by industry power players, including studio reps, producers, and fellow filmmakers. And the winning shorts in the narrative, animated, and documentary short film competitions are eligible for Academy Award consideration without the standard theatrical run, provided the film otherwise complies with the Academy rules. Plus, Nashville just seems like a really cool town, so this is definitely one to check out, especially if you've got a short. And finally, on December 4th is the final deadline for the wonderful San Francisco International Film Festival, which will be having its 61st year this year. It takes place in, of course, San Francisco from April 4th to the 17th. It's the longest running film festival in the Americas, and it's an extraordinary showcase of cinematic discovery, major cultural event in the Bay Area and the country. Uh, As you've probably heard, John and I both spent a lot of time in the Bay Area. John grew up there. I started my film career there, and I used to be on the jury for San Francisco International Film Festival for a few years. They really care about film and filmmakers. And I just have to mention that this is one that's definitely worth applying to because the San Francisco Film Society that puts it on has become one of the biggest funders of film in the country. And so if you get in this film festival and you're on their radar, it bodes well for your future potential funding opportunities. And now on to weekly words of wisdom. Woohoo! 
The end-of-the-year advice roundups are coming out, and Chris Boone has published his recap of the Hollywood Reporter's Best Screenwriters of 2017 video series this week. The article is titled Six Pragmatic Screenwriting Tips from the Writers of the Big Sick, Get Out, and More. I chose one from Darren Aronofsky that resonates strong with me both as a person and as a filmmaker. Push Past the Endless Nose Darren Aronofsky is no stranger to creating controversial films, nor does he shy away from making audiences very uncomfortable. Making controversial films also means facing a lot of rejection. Quote, There's so many struggling moments making a movie, said Aronofsky. The amount of no's you get as a filmmaker every day are endless, and that's why the only films I know how to make are films that I couldn't live without making. They're just burning from deep inside. So yeah, I mean, I would just share something about my experience making movies or making movie, uh, this is very real. Um, I was sitting on the script for my short for three years, four years, and a lot of people told me that like I couldn't do it, that it would cost too much money, that it was like far too ambitious of a project in terms of like what the script demanded. And then three years later, I still felt like I had to make this movie for whatever reason. And despite everyone saying, you know, no, 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 in terms of could it actually get made, uh, I decided to go ahead and do it anyways. So I would say, like, as long as you're saying yes to a project, you should push that above other people saying no, because you will find a way to get it made. Um, It's just entirely up to your own ambition. So if you feel like you got a good project, doesn't matter what other people are saying, do it. Yes. For my weekly words of wisdom, I'm pulling from uh, an awesome profile that Darren James did with one of the most talented DPs I've ever worked with, Caitlin Arismendi. She shot Natalia Ayudin's short film, The Garden, that I line produced a couple years ago, which incidentally starred Sophia Lillis, who's now Hollywood's latest it girl, so to speak. Oh, yeah, I totally know who that is. She starred in It, get it? Oh, okay. Yeah, and everyone's talking about her. Apparently, she really stole the show. Did you see it? No, I still haven't. Oh, my no gosh, one would I go can't see it with believe me. you haven't seen it. Everyone's oh my gosh. too fucking scared to see that movie, so. I'm so scared, but apparently Sophia Lillis is, like, amazing and on fire in it. Anyway, Kate has been shooting high-end commercials for clients like Kodak, BMW, and Levi's. And in this profile, she gives a lot of advice about choosing the right projects and partnerships to build your career. But I found her take on lenses particularly interesting because it kind of goes against what might be considered more conventional wisdom. Of course, she says when it comes to lenses, they're everything, which I think is something John and I have both learned a lot more about since uh, being here at No Film School. But she says, quote, when I shoot digital, my tendency is often to shoot with older glass that has character, which I think is fairly standard. However, she says when she shoots on film... Quote, I prefer sharp lenses like Master Primes because I like pushing film and shooting wide open in low light. Old glass can fall apart really easily on film. Which struck me as interesting because, I mean, old glass was designed for film originally. She also says that she's not the biggest fan of anamorphic, which also surprised me because everybody seems to rave about anamorphic in our, uh, in our recent interviews. She says, quote, it feels right for commercial and music video work sometimes, but I prefer spherical for narrative. I prefer the way close-ups of people's faces look with spherical glass, and it's easier to push them to the far edges of the frame without being distorted. While acknowledging that every project has its own set of needs, Kate mentions that a few of her favorite lenses are Panavision Ultraspeeds, Leica Summilux, Kawasina Promenars, Sphericals, 
Panavision E and C series and Panavision Primos. I take issue with a few of these things, but you know, she has way more experience than I do. I would say that like, you know, if you're if you're using a vintage lens for character, uh, you should also look into using a vintage anamorphic lens because like if you're looking for a lens that has character, there's not really any better combination than that. I mean, spherical, I also don't agree that anamorphic should be used for commercial and maybe music, maybe like experimental music videos, but I think spherical is a much more commercial uh, look to it. I don't know. Well, like I said, not the conventional wisdom, but she's shot a fuck ton more than either you or I have, so I thought it was really interesting. So, to close out the show, want to mention that as we're nearing the end of the year, we'll be going back to every other Monday for the interview podcasts, so you can take next Monday to get back to one of our fantastic past episodes that you may have missed. Can I recommend the one that I did with the co-directors and DP of Flames called How Do You Know Whether Your Film Is Porn or Art? It's definitely one of my most memorable from the year. Meanwhile, you can read about everything we talked about from the podcast in this week's podcast post at nofilmschool.com and check the site for new articles every day about the craft of filmmaking and the latest gear. And please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. Look for the No Film School podcast. And we love it when you stay in touch, so please do. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore underscore John underscore Jim. Just, just one underscore. Take it again. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim John, Jim John, Jim John, Jim. And Charles is at Charles Hain. We are at No Film School. And we will see you next Thursday. Thanks, guys.